After Julia left, Father Jacques elaborated on her situation. He believed she was possessed because she had become a Satanist and had turned to an evil lifestyle. Though why it was her specifically who had become possessed, he couldn't say. It's always a mystery why one person with such a background might become possessed, but not another with similar intentions. I believe she has consented to serve Satan in a more dramatic and explicit way. I wonder just what she was willing to promise for her special privileges with Satan and her elevated standing with the cult. Father Jacques didn't know too much about the, this group, this cult, but knew Julia had at times been living. Oops with several members. She had undergone a few exorcisms with little result, but Jacques remained, remained optimistic. Given her refusal to break definitively from her cult, however, I wondered whether Pollyannish was a better description of Father Jacques' expectation. I was becoming increasingly aware that once again, he wasn't asking me for a diagnosis. Instead, he wanted a better understanding of Julia's seeming ambivalence about continuing the exorcisms. He hoped I would be able to help unravel her motives. Father Jacques confirmed that Julia had previously met with the two psychologists. As part of my consultation, I telephoned them to corroborate Father Jacques' impressions. I knew and trusted the work of the first one. After interviewing Julia a few months previously, had concluded she wasn't psychotic. The second psychologist agreed. She doesn't seem at all delusional, has no reason to make things up, I was told. Although she may like intimidating people with her accounts, I don't think she exaggerates. She gives a lot of specific details. I would question her motives if she was lying at the, t at the very time she was asking for exorcisms, of her own free will. It seems counterproductive to get help from the church to acknowledge still being in the cult. Neither man believed that Julia had any overt psychotic disease, even though they felt, as I did, that there were clear features of personality disorder, that is, ingrained and poorly adaptive character traits in her case of an unsavory and long-standing nature, both concluded there was no clinical or conventional explanation for the paranormal features that seemed to follow Julia and her overall story seemed credible. Father Jacques entertained no doubts. Shortly after my first office visit with Julia, Father Jacques, Julia, and I were speeding along a highway in the priest's old Chevy, searching for a suitable venue for the next exorcism. At least, that's what Father Jacques told me we were doing. I later realized that he wanted the three of us to spend some time together so I could observe Julia in a more casual setting. I sat in the front passenger seat and Julia was in the back, alone with her thoughts. I wanted to talk to her, but Father Jacques' erratic driving distracted me. 
I've been assisting the exorcist, Father Jacques said, swerving the Chevy between lanes and riding the brakes. The chief exorcist is an interesting character. You'll meet him soon. From the back, I heard a deep, raspy voice. Leave her alone, you fucking monkey priest. Startled, I turned around and saw Julia glaring at us, her fists clenched. She's ours. You will never let her go. We will never let her go. You'll be sorry, you stupid monkey priest. The monkey part, I've always felt a fair indication of how evil spirits view us humans. The voice was coming out of Julia's mouth, but it wasn't really Julia. Her face had taken on a distant, even even vacant look. She went on like this for ten minutes. Ten minutes. Suddenly, the voice stopped, and Julia reemerged from whatever state I had just witnessed. She had no idea what had just happened. I asked her whether she remembered telling the priest anything. She did not, and she asked us what had been said, where we were, and how far we had traveled. After that trip... Uh, I lost my place. After that trip, I lost any lingering doubts about her situation, but I still wanted to question her further, especially about her boast of being a satanic witch, a claim that still seemed fantastic to me. A few days later, she and I met again, this time at Father Jacques' office. Not hesitating, I dove right into how she viewed herself and her status in the cult. She told me that she enjoyed her powers. She took great pride in them. A funny sort of pride, I was thinking, considering their source. Smiling, she promised their demonstration soon. I encouraged her to continue. You have to realize that I'm the priestess of the cult, she told me. I'm their queen, Satan's queen. I trust him alone. She pressed further. Why do you think people worship Satan? People usually think we are just superstitious or crazy and delusional and make things up. Well, I'm not nuts and have never seen or needed a head shrinker. You think we become Satanists because we're stupid? It's because we get a lot in return. We worship Satan because he looks after us and grants us big favors. Julia stated matter-of-factly that her psychic abilities were the traditional privileges of a high-status devil worshiper. There might do, she said. She didn't quite quibble about the term witch. Sorry, let me try that again. She didn't quibble about the term witch, but felt she was actually of a higher status than most witches. She relished her role and insisted that her paranormal abilities were typical only of a powerful witch, not a run-of-the-mill one. Her clear-eyed appreciation of her quote-unquote gifts intrigued me. In my years as a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, I had never encountered a person like Julia before. In addition to her apparent capacity... To view people remotely, Julia's powers included an accurate knowledge of others without having direct contact with them. She once told me how my own mother had died by the, pre- by the precise cause 
of ovarian cancer, which she had no way of knowing without a special source of knowledge. She did the same with other people, too. Some of this awareness falls under the category of hidden knowledge. Like speaking foreign languages, it is another of the classic signs of possession, as noted. Later, I called Father Jacques to discuss proposed dates for Julia's next exorcism. Suddenly, another voice interrupted our telephone conversation, hissing, We said leave her alone, you fucking priest. She belongs to us, not you. You'll be sorry. The voice was the same unsettling and creepy one I had heard in Father Jacques' Chevy. As cliché as it sounds... I felt the hair on the back of my neck standing up, and I nearly hung up the phone in a startled reaction. I asked Father Jacques whether he had just heard the voice, too. I've heard a demon's voice come over a phone line like this in a number of cases, he said. Always the more severe ones. I reflected that I again felt invaded, even more so by the incident... Sorry, even more so than by the incident with our cats... They can con intrude on my own te telephone, I was thinking. Just how far can these nasty creatures manipulate our surroundings, even our belongings? I imagined that the battle lines were drawn more starkly. I was being targeted, too, at least to a point, because I was trying to help Julia. Our demonic foes now considered me part of the problem. What else was in store? I always believe that skepticism should start out governing all these investigations, but it is difficult and foolish to hold on to disbelief in the face of an overwhelming evidence. After observing Julia on our trip, reflecting upon her knowledge of the cats, and now hearing the disturbing voice over the phone, I lost any lingering doubts about her dire situation. Something beyond a medical disorder clearly was occurring here, and in a matter and in a manner far beyond what I had observed in previous cases. I could not diagnose any mental or physical reasons that could explain these events. It had long been difficult to see Julia's state as any sort of psychi psychiatric disturbance, particularly when so many inexplicable and peculiar events were simultaneously happening. For my work on inpatient units, I had seen many cases of so-called multiple personality disorder, now more properly labeled disassociative identity disorder. This was hard this was hardly that. Although such patients disassociate, this exchange and the other paranormal features I had experienced firsthand with Julia convinced me that the case entailed phenomena far beyond what any psychiatric patient presents. I wondered again just what I had gotten myself into. Before the next scheduled exorcism ritual, I had another long talk with Julia when she returned to the area. I was direct, asking her, quote, Why are you hesitating to keep going on with the exorcisms? And yet you are the one requesting them. She didn't say anything for a long time. I was trying to imagine her emotional state. Oppositional and ornery? Manipulative and scheming? Fearful? 
I felt all of these options were on the table. Finally, looking down, she said, I'm scared. I'm suffering. I need to get rid of this. Tell me more about that, I said. She sighed and finally recounted what she called a long story. She hadn't had an easy life. She'd been baptized a Catholic and attended Catholic schools, but never took religious beliefs seriously. Her family life wasn't so great, something I fully expected to hear. But she was reluctant to provide much detail about her parents. Or criticize them either. When she was a teenager, a priest took an interest in her. I soon found out what that was about, she stated. Julia told me she had sexual... Sorry, Julia told me he, the priest, had sexually molested her. Strangely, she didn't think it had affected her much, although she noted that it certainly drove her away from the church. Sexually naive at the time, she was curious about sex, and, she told me, mostly enjoyed the physical contact before fully realizing what sex was all about. She dismissed it as her dalliance, but admitted that the molestation did more than disillusion her about the church. She, she felt it eventually contributed to her attraction to a local group of Satanists in the area that had an acquaintance uh, in common with her and, uh, she, and had told her about it when she complained about the priest. I was aware of the toll such sexual abuses take, especially from an unexpectedly trustworthy authority. I felt Julia minimized her trauma and other stressors of her life. I was also thinking that she was probably opening up more to me than she had to anyone else, which I took as a sign that maybe she was willing to accept help. But I had to remind myself that I wasn't serving as her therapist, and so I didn't want her to become overwhelmed by her powerful memories. I had seen patients fall apart after sessions where they first vent ventilated such traumatic issues. Still, Julia continued to describe these painful memories in a matter-of-fact manner. It didn't seem overwhelmed. Because of my training, I knew she was omitting many details, but I let her continue without pressing her. It was hard to be sure of a confident formulation of her dynamics. I was curious, for instance, about her early family life and what her cult was like, but because I was explicitly not her therapist, I decided to let her go on at her own pace and choosing. Her tale lacked key details, but I got the sense that in turning to this bizarre cult, she may have been looking for a substitute family. I fell in love with its leader, a powerful guy named Daniel, she admitted. He was the first really strong man I had ever met or had relations with. Very handsome and domineering, a little dark-skinned, not like that pale priest who looked like he'd spent his life in a library. Daniel had an air of danger. I know certain women go for the bad boy type, I guess I was one of them. A search for pleasure at the point of existence was at the core of how she thought of herself. This, she stated, was the typical thinking of the true sat Satanist. Julia explained how the cult eventually made her its queen. 
She called herself Queen Lilith, after the name of a legendary demon seductress. The cult also worshipped Asmodeus, the demon of lust, she added. When she really liked, sorry, what she really liked to call herself, though, was the queen of voluptuous delights. She had, signed, she had signed letters she'd sent to Father Jacques with that title, as he later showed me. Sex was obviously a big piece of all this. Sex seemed a part of many weird cults in some way, shape, or form. The women, especially the younger and more desired ones, were often sought after for their favors until, that is, they weren't. Male leaders often restricted the females to their own pleasurable purposes, excluding lesser male followers from the delights of such benefits. Julia developed a taste for kinky sex. I was pretty perverted, she told me, grinning. Still am. She's been flattered that the priest, a smart and educated man, had found her enticing, but she didn't seem especially clingy or obsessed with him as many patients with borderline features tend to become. She was hardly impressed with his sexual prowess, describing him as inexperienced and fumbling, though a nice gentleman, end quote. She recounted, without much emotion, that he eventually got kicked out of the priesthood. She thought he may have later killed himself. By contrast, she stated, sex with Daniel was like something I fantasized about, Rough at times, but it excited me to no end. Orgies with the other members of the cult were a frequent occurrence as well, which Julia also found arousing. She liked that the men in the group all wanted to have sex with her. Julia did get jealous to see Daniel with other women, but she felt that was a life she had chosen. She enjoyed the orgies, which she called parties. But sex was often a part of their more elaborate rituals, too. She hesitated to tell me much about these periodic ceremonies, which she called black masses, in parody of the traditional Catholic mass. Scholars date such rituals to at least the Middle Ages and some to even earlier times, though these rituals have varied widely over the centuries. Sex and bodily fluids have often played an integral part in them. Julia told me little other than that they were dressed in robes and used stolen Eucharist hosts during ceremonies. Daniel, who ran the ceremonies dressed in full satanic garb, was the most powerful member of the group. He was devoted to Satan and prayed to Lucifer all the time, which is why, according to Julia, he too received so many privileges in return. His powers eclipsed Julia's. He had some kind of profession, Julia said, but from a communication of his that I was shown, he appeared a vile and not exceptionally bright guy, an obvious narcissist. Julia originally thought he cared about her in a special way, but she was beginning to wonder whether his feelings had changed. She was getting older and told me she wasn't sure she could get pregnant anymore. Meaning? I asked. Julia hesitated before answering my question. I could sense that she was debating how much to tell me. She chose her words carefully and spoke defensively. I was the cult's main breeder, she said. I could get pregnant easily, which gave me a special status in the group. We had someone who could perform abortions, a physician's assistant, I, I think, a repulsive guy. We used fetuses for ceremonies. Daniel encouraged it and said he and Satan 
would honor and reward me greatly for this service and be eternally grateful for my role. I sure wanted to be in good with Satan. He could deliver the goods. People paint his kingdom as eternal torment, but I doubt that. It's some kind of society, I suppose, even if there are some punishments and stuff. There is that in this life, too. And there I'd have a high status, I was promised. So I was excited to do this benefit to him in some strange way. Plus, Daniel was pleased with me, too. Julia and Daniel... Julia said Daniel told her that people had been doing this kind of service to Satan for centuries. The group considered themselves pagans, he argued, and he claimed that a lot of pagan cultures were essentially demon worshippers, but the Aztecs did far worse in sacrificing living humans, mostly women and children. I was repulsed, but said nothing. Later, I heard similar stories from a few other individuals, though I was rarely sure of their credibility. I generally doubted their veracity, though a few such stories seemed credible to me from their details, in addition to Julia's. I once asked an assistant district attorney whether such a thing as using a dead fetus in satanic rituals was illegal. Well, technically, yes, he told me, but no one is going to prosecute someone for that. Plus, how are you going to obtain evidence? He asked me whether I knew of any ongoing examples. I told him that everyone who spoke of such offerings, as Julia called them, claimed they no longer engaged in that behavior. As Julia recounted her role in these demonic ceremonies, she seemed untroubled by her past actions. What seemed to bother her the most was her fear that Daniel no longer loved her. For the first time in my life, I had felt really special, she said. Daniel had singled me out. I started out when I was a cute teenager. It was really intoxicating for a while, but now I'm not so sure. I'm getting older and wonder whether Daniel still cares for me. He said, okay, when I told him I'd just I'm just trying to cause some mischief with the priests by seeking their advice and maybe get them in hot water if I can. He'd love that, trust me. And so would Satan. But I'm not sure if he still cares what happens to me. I don't think I can breed now and wonder whether I'm, you know, expendable. I was struck by her openness and also took notice of her ongoing fear. But I wondered whether everyone she described as was fully, I'm sorry, let me try that again. But I wondered whether everything she described was fully accurate. I didn't have a good feeling about what she was saying or how she was saying it. During our meetings, her attitude about seeking help would shift dramatically from the genuine hopefulness, from genuine hopefulness and a vague search for God and forgiveness to an outright rejection and special hatred of Christianity. Privately, I questioned whether she really wanted the help, except during moments of transparent, oh, sorry, of transient desperation. Though somewhat hindered by Julia's unwillingness to reveal too much, I attempted to get a better feel for her personality in the hope of better understanding her hesitation. I felt sure by then that she had some entrenched features of personality disorder that were interfering with her ability to make a firm commitment. 
Patients with borderline personality disorder are often inconsistent in their intentions and attitudes. Julia didn't seem a fragile person, as many such individuals are, but she also had other character defects that, despite her apparent frankness, made me question her motives. She was a bit grandiose and could be quite critical and belittling behavior that was suggestive of some narcissistic traits. I suspected she was desperate enough to attempt to cause trouble for Father Jacques, perhaps to ingratiate herself with Daniel. Maybe, I considered. She was trying to have it both ways, trying to rid herself of the oppression while not alienating or even leaving the cult. I knew enough by then about how victims of such demonic attacks needed to work out their own spiritual liberation and understand that they had to strongly commit to their spiritual health. I told her exorcisms weren't magical incantations, like the chants of a witch doctor, but she didn't seem to be able to take in my advice, perhaps being too afraid to think things through fully.